VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All eyes are on Egypt as the Conference of the Parties, or COP, is now underway for the 27th time. And with more records and weather disasters in the headlines, it's crucial to globally curb rising temperatures. Here to discuss COP27 and where we stand in the climate crisis is Carl Parker. Parker has been with the Weather Channel since 1999 and with their expert team since 2011. He leads climate coverage at the network and hopes to educate on how climate is changing our weather today, as well as inform on how we can better steward our planet. Carl, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, Carl's all one of my favorite colleagues at the Weather Channel. I've been, been there for a while and someone that I was surprised to learn. This is his first time on Weather Geeks podcast. So <laughs> I have to ask you this question before we go any further, because I ask it to every guest. How did you become a Weather Geek? Well, oh, wow, that started a long, long time ago. I mean, I can remember uh, standing outside during thunderstorms, which I understand that you're not supposed to do when I was, you know, very young, uh, just being completely enthralled by storms. Uh, and, you know, I remember singular events. I grew up in the D.C. area and we had a blizzard in 78 that dropped, you know, something close to two and a half feet uh, where we were. It was just astonishing. And uh, the remnants of hurricanes, uh, Frederick and David, you know, came through the area. And I I just was knocked over by how different the atmosphere was during those events. So there were a lot of things that that kind of pointed in this direction. And, uh, uh, you know, I was pretty single-minded about it when I got to, by the time I got into college. So your story is very similar to many of us in terms of the early age and exposure. But one of the things you also are quite an expert on is climate. So how did you really become such a climate expert or a climate geek? Well, you know, I, I started paying a lot of attention to this. So I've been a broadcast meteorologist for over 30 years. And I've noticed, like, you know, all of us have in the business, that the weather is changing, that it's not the same. And it's funny because, you know, we we talk about climate change and we make this, you know, clear delineation between weather and climate. But, you know, when it boils down to it, the fact is that the weather is changing. It's actually not operating the same way. You know, we've noticed all kinds of bizarre things, you know, that, that rainfall seems a little different in some instances. Uh, certainly, we know that it's a lot heavier than it's been in the past. And so I think that's that's where it came from. It was born out of that, you know, trying to understand, you know, what's going on, trying to be able to answer questions when people ask, well, hey, well, I don't understand why I'm seeing this and I've never seen this before, which, by the way, is you know apparently the number one reason why people change their mind about climate change. There was a study out of the University of Chicago several years ago, and they found that of the people that had changed their mind about climate change, the majority of them had done so because they were seeing things in the weather that they had not seen before. And so I think that's very powerful. I think that is doing even more than we can do uh, when we try to explain this to people. Yeah, that's a that's a great point that you you mentioned that study. Uh, everything's local to people and their own experiences and perspective can shift the broader narrative for them. It's something I have noticed as well. Now, as we are speaking, Carl, and even our colleague, Josh Vexler, shout out to Josh uh, Vexler from the Weather Channel. 
connected us from Egypt because he actually is with the Weather Channel delegation or party in Egypt for the 27th conference of the parties or what, what's called COP. I need uh, you to break down for our listeners because you and I understand this COP and IPCC and how it's all connected and, and so forth. But I suspect most people have no clue when we banter around the words COP27, what that means. So give us a 101 on what COP is and how it fits into the grand scheme of things in terms of international action on climate. Yeah, so this is the the conference of the parties in its 27th year, uh, therefore COP27. And, you know, this is when all the uh, representatives from nations around the world get together and try to develop a framework and uh, a plan, essentially, for tackling global emissions. Now, um, you know, so far, there there have been some really good plans that have been made. One of the big questions, of course, is implementation, uh, whether or not we can get countries to agree to live up to the agreements that they have made so far. But, you know, there are plenty of countries that are at least at the table and willing to discuss, you know, ways to, to move forward. You know, I think one of the critical issues that each of these meetings is looking at is what is called the emissions gap. And so, you know, at this point, we are pretty close to the, say, 2C trajectory. Uh, we'd like to try to limit warming to two degrees Celsius if we can do that. And we're pretty close to that trajectory right now. But what's going to happen over the next, say, eight to 10 years is we're going to rapidly begin to pull away from that trajectory with the current agreements that we have in place today. That's a real problem because the farther that we get away from that trajectory, the harder it is to get back on it. You need a much steeper curve of emissions reduction to get back on that curve. And so, you know, this period is a really critical period that we're dealing with right now in terms of, you know, being able to at least limit warming to, to two degrees Celsius. Ideally, we'd limit it to 1.5. Um, you know, a lot of people think that that maybe that's already uh, going to be occurring at this point. I think another big thing that that comes out of these meetings is how we deal with disparity in the world. And, you know, certainly rich nations have caused the vast majority of the problem. When you look at historical emissions, uh, the U.S. is at the top of the list. Obviously, China is putting out the most emissions right now. We are still near the top of the list in terms of per capita emissions, however. And, you know, you've got nations that are very, very wealthy that are seeing a lot of what is called loss and damage from weather events, but they're not as debilitating as they are in some cases when you're talking about nations that don't have as much money. For example, this past summer, Pakistan had another devastating flood event, and it cost somewhere around $30 billion. Well, you know, it seems like we see disasters that number in the tens of billions of dollars every year. But in the case of Pakistan, that was somewhere around 10% of their GDP. So that is having a huge impact, even though they contribute less than 1% to global emissions. So there's an incredible disparity there in terms of how much nations are contributing to the problem and how much they have to face as compared to wealthy nations that are mostly driving the problem and what they have to deal with. Talking with Carl Parker. Carl is a storm specialist and climate specialist at the Weather Channel. He joined the Weather Channel in 1999 and has been an on-camera meteorologist for 12 years, for the first 12 years, I should say. 
Uh, he joined the expert team in 2011, and he coordinates Weather Channel's climate coverage. So we certainly have an expert on the topic. Carl, what, you know, there's some cynics out there. And, and by the way, that two degrees Celsius, so that's how the rest of the world speaks about climate. But for those of us listening here in the U.S., that's about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so it's not a trivial amount that we're trying to sort of contain. Uh, and as, as Carl noted, uh, we're dangerously close to that trajectory and so far not really at the level of action we need to be. What would you say, Carl, in terms of those that would say, well, you've been having these COP meetings since 1995 and really nothing has come out of it. We're still sort of in a period of climate delayism. I mean, would you push back that there have been significant contributions from this series of COP meetings over the years? Oh, I, I absolutely think that there have been, you know, very significant contributions. I mean, you know, they, we understand the problems very, very well. And and certainly that's important. Now, yeah, there is a case to be made that, you know, we have not seen the level of action that would be concordant with the seriousness of this problem. I, you know, I can see where that criticism would come from. But, you know, I do think that there are a lot of reasons to hope at this point. I think one of the big ones is this incredible drop in the levelized cost of energy for renewables. You know, wind and solar is now at cost parity with fossil fuels in a lot of cases. And I think that's so important because, you know, what we've seen in recent months is that we are starting to bend the trajectories a little bit. And, you know, once you get to a point where wind and solar is cheaper than fossil fuel, it almost doesn't matter whether policymakers have really, you know, lived up to their promises or not, because then it's going to be in the hands of the markets. And, you know, things are going to begin to take off at that point. So I, I think we're getting very, very close to that in a lot of ways, in a lot of arenas. You know, I also think about EVs, and I, I know you have an EV, and I just got one a couple of months ago. And by the way, it's a wonderful way to drive. I don't think I oh, can ever I can, go back. I, I, absolutely. I can't envision driving anything else. I, oh. I've, I've stated that as well. Uh, it's incredible. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, such a nice experience. And, you know, I think that I, I just read recently that EVs are at 5% market penetration. And that is a critical value for what is called the S-shaped adoption curve. If you look at technologies throughout history, when they reach that point, whether it was flat screen televisions or cell phones or smartphones, when they reach that 5%, they usually skyrocketed after that point. And so the thinking is that we are right at the beginning of a point at which EVs are going to take off. That's huge. That's 29% of emissions in the United States. And it may be that we have some 900 million EVs on the road by 2040. That's what the IEA is projecting. That would be almost half of the global fleet. So I think we're right at the point when we're about to see some really substantial changes in the way we use energy, in the way we develop energy. And so I, I think that's very important. And I do have hope for that reason. But, you know, it may be one of those things where we're almost falling into it <laughs> rather than actively deciding to, to do it. You know, it reminds me of when Winston Churchill said that, you know, Americans always do the right thing, but only after exhausting all of the possibilities. Um, I, you know, I think we'll get there. And I think we're getting there. And I think also that that people are really starting to connect the dots and understand that this is, hey, this is having an effect on me. This is affecting me personally. I'm seeing things that I never saw before. You know, I'm I'm in the Northwest where the forest has been, you know, historically cool and damp for most of the year. And suddenly we're having these incredible heat waves and wildfires. You know, I can't imagine 
that that people aren't you know aware of this if even on a you know just a gut level welding instructor alex declare knows vr training platforms like forge fx help students master their skills there's a big learning curve with welding virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with storm specialist and climate expert, Carl Parker from the Weather Channel. And I want to sort of follow up on that comment Carl and I both made about EVs, because I, I have the fortune of uh, and uh, to be able to drive one. But I also would say that completely understand that the infrastructure is not there and the cost is prohibited for many people that may be listening. And so that's why many of the sort of policy levers that we've seen in this country recently to expand, uh, for example, charging stations uh, every 50 miles or whatever it was on the interstate or other sort of initiatives, I think that will bring, bring EVs into that explosion period that you talked about. And I think it can be uh, a, a, an equalizer too. I and mean, people have criticized me when I say I drive an EV on Twitter by saying, oh, that's elitist. You can afford it and blah, blah, blah. I actually look at it the other way around. Uh, I think that, you know, so many people are exposed to the whims of the sort of fossil fuel gas prices that uh, someone perhaps on a, a fixed income or an income that, that, that may be stressed, um, they get hit by those swings. And so the EV market or the EV space can certainly stabilize that in some regards. So yeah. I guess my question to you, Carl, uh, is what do you see as the biggest climate challenge in the U.S.? Is it more on the solution mitigation or adaptation side? Is it the fact that we're exposed to a new generation of extreme weather or a combination? What, what do you see as our biggest challenge here in the U.S. right now? Oh, well, I mean, that's a that's a difficult question. I, you know, I, th I think there are so many arenas in which we are going to be, you know, facing problems. I mean, we've got, you know, anything from, you know, crop failures, you know, issues in the West with, you know, drought and wildfire. I mean, there, there are towns in the West that are literally running out of water. I remember I, I, you know, talked to somebody years ago and I, you know, I asked them, uh, do you think it's possible that we could actually run out of water in some towns? And, you know, she kind of laughed that off. And, and, you know, here we are looking at, there's actually a town that's near Scottsdale in Arizona that has literally run out of water. Uh, it's a large subdivision and, you know, they're not sure what they're going to do. They have no groundwater. They can't get it trucked in any longer. Um, so, you know, we, we're already seeing these, you know, sort of life-changing uh, you know, events that are occurring in the West and, and through the middle of the country. And of course, you've got, you know, weather to be concerned about flooding. There's been this dramatic rise in the level of damages from flooding. Um, you know, of course, tropical weather and hurricanes uh, getting stronger, getting stronger, faster, slowing down, having more impact as a result. So, you know, it's really difficult to say it's going to, it's really coming at us from so many angles. I mean, there's almost you know, no arena in which, you know, climate change will not have at least some impact. And and so, I you know, I do think this is increasingly going to be a sort of all hands on deck uh, kind of situation. And, and I also wanted to, if I could, I wanted to go back to, to EVs a little bit because, you know, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. And, and yes, there is this, you know, sort of large initial cost. But I think once we do get past this you know early adoption period and it appears that we're right on the precipice of doing that right now we do see you know and right now there are i think 30 automakers that are either making 
EVs are planning to, and battery production is also going to be uh, really ramping up in this country and elsewhere, that's going to bring the cost of these cars down significantly. So that that's huge. That's an important part of it. But we also have to talk about the total cost of ownership because, you know, this is something that's not often discussed. I, I ran some calculators the other day um, looking at the car that I got relative to a gas guzzler, say an excursion or a suburban or something like that. And what this calculator showed is that, first of all, over a five-year time frame, there would be about a $4,500 difference in maintenance because you don't really have to do much at all uh, besides, you know, replace brakes and tires on EVs. But more importantly, it showed that there would be a $19,000 difference in fuel cost driving 10 to 15,000 miles per year. I mean, that is staggering. So, you know, over five years, you're talking about a $25,000 or $24,000 difference in cost. And, you know, if you just lop that off the top, well, you know, then suddenly it doesn't seem so crazy to spend a little bit more on EVs. And again, I think that's going to change over time because we're going to have so much more production of EVs. And, you know, one other thing I wanted to mention is I think also it requires a little bit of thinking about, you know, people think about range and, you know, well, I can only go, you know, this far, but you often have two cars in a family and sometimes you have more than that. And so you can think of one car as being your sort of around town car and another car as being the one that you might take on trips. And actually what studies have shown is that that DC charging, that fast charging is something that should be used only sparingly. It's not as good for EV batteries because it heats them up so much. So you're better off only using home level one or level two charging. So I think if we just, you know, sort of shift the expectation, if you think of an EV as your around town car, which is going to be the vast majority of your driving, and maybe you have a hybrid or something like that for your trips, you know, then maybe that doesn't become so daunting. I know that range has been a a really big issue for a lot of people. I think I've got 270 miles of range on mine has not been any problem uh, at all for me thus far. Um, and, you know, I, I just think it, it requires a little more discussion about these issues. Talking with meteorologists and storm specialist Carl Parker from the Weather Channel and talking about COP27 and the implications of COP, things like transition to EVs and renewable energy and so forth. At the end of the day, I think most of the discussion has moved from climate change is happening or is climate change happening or so forth to what do we do? Uh, but Carl, I recently, uh, maybe a few months ago, uh, was invited by the White House to talk to a group of experts about what's called climate delayism. Mm. And this climate delayism is this notion that yeah, we've kind of gotten over the hump of talking about whether climate change is happening, but now there's a real debate about what to do about it, who's to lose and, and when, uh, the cost and so forth. Uh, and then there's also the adaptation side of the house. I mean, the, the ways that we kind of address climate change, I think COP is really talking about the mitigation side, reducing emissions. Uh, but there's also the adaptation, like you mentioned, these heat waves in the, in the Northwest or hurricanes, so we need to do something now about them. What What's your own opinion about uh, the mix of what we need to be doing first? Is adaptation, you know, the mitigation, geoengineering? What are your thoughts there? Oh, wow. Geoengineering. 
<laughs> I know that's the last that's the you know pet shop boy said sometimes the solution's worse than the problem in a song that's a can of worms right there that, absolutely but I, and I think that's really the extreme case yeah. I, mean, I think mitigation and adaptation are the main ones I'm just it's kind of interested in your thoughts of sort of where the levers are that you see well yeah I mean I think it you know as I, I mentioned before I think it's a kind of all hands on deck situation we're going to have to be looking at all of these different things uh, simultaneously you mentioned um, delay, you know, Alex Steffen has an even more uh, sort of sinister uh, way of putting that. He calls it predatory delay. And, you know, I heard a staggering figure just the other day uh, about the loss that has occurred globally. The loss from weather disasters has been somewhere around a half a trillion dollars over the last 20 years. And, um, you know, that's been through, I believe, 2019, you know, 2000 to 2019. During that same period, the profits of the six largest oil companies was 60 times that number, 60 times that number. And so, you know, it is very clearly a situation where people are profiting today off of things that are going to occur in the future, off of people's backs who live in the future, off of our children. And, you know, we don't often hear this framed as a children's issue. I think it could be thought of as the sort of ultimate children's issue. You know, I have two teenagers and, you know, people often ask me, well, why, you know, why is this such a big deal to you? Why do you care about this so much? And I said, because I have kids. I mean, that's it right there, because, you know, what they're going to see is, you know, it could be really remarkable. There could be profound changes in you know the way that we live and and what we're used to and you know so i do think that it's going to require um efforts in all arenas we're going to have to do our very best to bring emissions down first and foremost and you know i don't know that everybody everybody understands the sort of stock flow model here and and what that suggests is um the way that emissions are working is they're coming out of a faucet and they're coming into a tub and the tub is full and the tub represents all of the greenhouse emissions that we have put into the atmosphere. And so even if we slow the faucet, that's not enough. We have to also be draining the tub at the same time. It's not enough to just reduce emissions. You've actually got to bring them down. And there are a lot of different ways that, that we can do that. Um, you know, certainly trees are an important uh, way to reduce emissions. And, you know, land use is also critical in that regard. So, you know, I think there's so many different things that we need to be looking at in terms of reducing emissions, but adaptation is also going to be, you know, an enormously important thing. I mean, and maybe in even just small ways. I mean, we thought about uh, what happened with Ian more recently and was having a discussion with Dr. Rick Nabb about this. And we often talk about the fact that, you know, Track forecasts are pretty good, but intensity forecasts are the area where we struggle a little bit. Well, you know, in some cases we struggle with the track forecast as well. And you know, that's what pre precisely what happened with Ian. And, you know, he was saying to me that, you know, maybe in a case like this, with a storm this large and this powerful, coming towards a section of coastline from an oblique angle where the entire coastline is exceedingly vulnerable because of the bathymetry because of the nature of the seafloor. You know, maybe this is a situation where you have to just, you know, not try to be so targeted about what you're saying and just say, look, if you're anywhere along the East Coast of, or excuse me, the West Coast of Florida, 
you need to be prepared for the possibility of a catastrophic surge. And so, you know, these are the ways in which I think we need to start thinking differently about, you know, how we're going to be affected by weather in the future. We've got sea level rise, of course, contributing to that threat. And, you know, we're going to have to gradually sort of begin to retreat from the coast. There is an enormous amount of value in property. You know, I believe trillions of dollars globally at an elevation of six feet or less coastally. And, you know, that the adaptation that's going to be required there is just going to be absolutely enormous. It's going to put tremendous, you know, stress on insurance markets and, you know, the reinsurance market. Um, so, you know, there's almost no way, uh, excuse me, no arena uh, in which we're not going to be impacted by this. And, and you know, I think it's important for people to to understand that because I do think that, you know, when most people look at, you know, the various things that are important to them, well, the here and the now obviously is the thing that kind of stands out. It's the, the thing that really jumps out. It's, you know, your bills and your mortgage and inflation and all of that. Um, and they don't probably put climate change that high on the list, but I think it's going to be rising really rapidly in coming years. And the sooner that people realize that and are on board, I think the sooner we can get about, you know, making some changes. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with the Weather Channel's Carl Parker. And you can certainly see why we uh, were excited to have Carl on the show talking about climate change and COP27 because he's extremely knowledgeable on the topic. Um, Carl, you know, this can seem like a big problem, big problem. And by the way, I wanted to say one thing you mentioned about absolutely people, everything I often talk about, everything's local, everything's about people's kitchen table Mm. issues at the moment and they don't perceive climate change as being as such and i think it will grow but uh, i do often make the point that it is in their kitchen table issues they just don't see it directly but when yes. there's a drought when there's a drought uh in california in the central valley i mean they're paying more for wine or broccoli or tomatoes and things that when they go to their local grocery stores or when there's a hurricane barreling through a strong hurricane barreling through the Gulf of Mexico and and those that still do use gasoline in their cars, those oil rigs shut down and we see a spike in gas prices because of the, the reduction in supply. So right. there are all of these ways that it certainly is within our kitchen table issues, but I really resonated with your point. But for people listening right now to the Weather Geeks podcast, what would you say are things that they, I mean, we, we know what people at COP27, they're going to sit there and do these big international policy things, but for the individual that's listening, uh, what, what can they do? I mean, and again, it's going to take large scale policy actions to really reverse this problem, but are there things from your perspective that the individual can do? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that's been an interesting topic in recent years because there was actually a push by some bad actors to sort of push all of this on people's individual action. And as you mentioned, large scale action is going to be very 
important. So it's not all on the backs of people. It's not something that's sort of out of the hands of of the you know policymakers and, and larger multinational uh, corporations. That having been said, there are absolutely things that we can do to improve our own carbon fr- footprint. Um, you know, I think about uh, Project Drawdown. That's a fascinating area of research. You know, they look at the uh, solutions that have the greatest you know uh, bang for the buck, essentially. And their list is really interesting. Number one on their list for reducing emissions is food waste. And we apparently throw out about a third of the food that we uh, use every year, consume or try to. And, um, you know, you think about every bite of food that you took and all that went into that, all the energy that was used to, to grow or to raise and then to transport and then to store, uh, you know, there's a huge amount of energy in food. And every time you waste that food, you waste that energy. So that is a, you know, a major lever that people can pull uh, to reduce emissions. And then you've got other things. Number three on that list is a plant-based diet. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that that's hard to do at all. That's something that my family and I have done for several years now. And, and particularly now with all the choices that there are, you know, there are a lot of different things that you can look at in your home. And one thing that I think is a pretty easy sell is the idea of saving money. And, you know, my wife and I moved into this home uh, 17 years ago. And at the time, it was like probably a lot of Atlanta subdivisions, you know, it had such sort of tiny, you know, manicured shrubbery around it and not a lot of tree cover. And uh, it was as leaky as can be. And when I first saw the utility bills, I was just, (laughs) I was just knocked over. I could not believe you know, I just thought, what have I gotten myself into here? <laughs> yes. You know, and it was it was staggering. So, you know, what's happened since then is I've done all of these different things. You know, I really shored up the attic. I put in, you know, attic fans and new insulation, you know, several times over, you know, this just great big, you know, snowstorm of uh, insulation in the attic. And I've sealed up things and, and uh, you know, done a lot of stuff to to really improve our efficiency. We got a tankless water heater. And the result has been that I actually, 17 years later, 17 years later, I'm paying somewhere around 40 to 50% of what I was paying then 17 years ago in utility bills. And so, you know, when you look at it from that perspective, the amount of money that you can save, I think that's really, you know, easily saleable, low hanging fruit for people just you know, shore up your home, spend less energy, spend less money on energy. Um, and then, of course, there's transportation. That's a that's a really big one. We talked about that, too. You know, I, I think there are a lot of different things that people can do. And, you know, in many cases, they're, they're improvements. They're things that will improve their lives. I mean, you can, you know, have a home where, you know, it's, it's very leaky and, and you're using a lot of energy. And maybe that sh- saves you more in terms of the initial outlay, but in the longer term, you could end up paying a lot more. Yeah, you really make some important points here. And and I really do uh, want to shout out opportunities and efforts like Project Drawdown and so forth. Um, they're, they're making a difference. In this last few moments of the podcast, Carl, what do you hope to see come out of COP27? Well, you know, I'd really like to see, you know, substantial agreements among these these major countries. I mean, we 
we we do have a lot of commitments you know that are that are being made but you know implementation is is a real issue we also really do need to see some some progress on loss and damage you know the last year at the cop 26 um, nations agreed to put about 100 billion dollars annually into a fund to help these you know poorer and less developed nations with um, all the crises that they'll be facing and and so far we haven't really lived up to that in terms of finance so climate finance is going to be a very important part of the adaptation uh, plan going forward uh, but mostly I just I hope that we you know we all I, I do think that there are many people who are you know just acutely aware of the fact that this is going to cost us so much more than it will uh, to mitigate and and to adapt I mean I, I there was a study that came out several years ago and I'm not sure if the numbers are uh, completely accurate anymore but uh, what it sh said was that sea level rise alone could cost us somewhere around 10 percent of gdp where mitigation efforts might cost us between one and two percent of gdp so you know the cost to move quickly into this new era is so much lower than the cost uh, of you know just status the status quo uh, just, you know, continuing on as we are. And I think the sooner that we're all aware of that and, and the more that nations sign on and really agree to take substantial action, the better off we're all going to be. That's that's a pretty significant exclamation point that we'll, we'll put on this episode. Carl, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Can can people find you or follow you on social media? Are you on Twitter and more public spaces? Yes, I am on Twitter. I'm on, uh, uh, I'm at Parker TWC is my handle on Twitter and uh, I'm on Facebook as well. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I highly recommend giving Carl a follow. He's just one of the mo most knowledgeable uh, people I have found uh, in, in this, in this business and on climate and, and, and weather as well. He's certainly an expert there too, but uh really someone that understands the connection between weather and climate and does not see them as sort of isolated, independent things. And I think that's important. Uh, Carl, once again, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time.